0: I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. Human beings have compared themselves to animals forever, usually to the latter's disadvantage. When we say that someone is behaving like an animal, we rarely mean it as a compliment. Animals have nothing to teach us except how not to behave. It's a similar story from the other end of the relationship. For much of the 20th century, if you claim that animals, even primates, had recognisable thoughts or emotions... be accused of rather soppy anthropomorphizing. Animals are, so the behaviorists told us, machines. Just as their behavior had little to teach us, so our inner human world of feeling and intentionality was completely alien to them. This has all begun to change recently, as scientists, and especially primatologists, have shown convincingly that some animals really do think and feel in ways that we would recognise. The primatologist who has done more than anyone else to generate this new understanding of animals and to convey it to the public is Franz de he He's written a string of brilliant, thoughtful and highly readable books on the social behaviour of animals and what it says about them and about us. And his most recent one is called mama's last hug animal emotions and what they teach us about ourselves france welcome to reading our times thank you the first and obvious place to start is by asking about who mama was and what was her last hug
1: oh mama was a the alpha female of the arnhem zoo chimpanzee colony she was uh, alpha female for 40 years which is unusual even for a female. For the males, it's certainly unusual. Males are alpha males for five years or six years, (laughs) not so long. So she um, died at the age of 59, and I had known her all that time because when I was a student and started studying the chimps there, uh, she was already alpha female. And my professor, Jan van Hoof had also known her for such a long time. She was the representative of the group. So she interacted with us humans as if she represented the group. And when she died, uh, Jan van Hoof decided to uh, visit her in her night cage where she lay dying. And that's something we never do. You never go in with an adult chimpanzee that's just too dangerous. They're far stronger than we are. And so normally that never happens. But since she was so weak and curled up in her nest and dying, uh, Jan decided to go in. And the the encounter between him and Mama was videotaped and was very moving because um, she embraced him and was very happy to see him and was absolutely non-aggressive at this point. And many people were moved by it. People were surprised how human-like the facial expressions and the sounds and the embrace and the patting on the back and all of that was that mama did. And I thought, well, we've been saying for for 50 years that chimps are our closest relatives. So why would you be surprised that Mm. they express their emotions in the same way that we do? And so I I felt I needed to take that as the starting point of my book on on animal emotions by Mm. explaining that it's logical. We have the same muscles in the face as the chimpanzee, exactly the same ones. And so there was a time where people thought that We obviously would have far more muscles because we have far more subtle expressions of emotions, but that's not the case. The chimp has the same sort of expressions. And so I felt I needed to take that as the starting point.
0: Well, we can go back even further than 50 years. We should do. You quote at one point an encounter that, Charles Darwin had at the Zoological Society in in London in 1838, he encounters an orangutan and he says the keeper showed her an apple and would not give it to her, whereupon she threw herself on her back, kicked and cried, precisely like a naughty child. Now, Darwin, of course, was incredibly perceptive as Mm -hmm. a scientist, but from that point, he very early on, he's recognising very close parallels between the emotional reactions of other primates and human beings isn't he why does that not begin scientific tradition of comparison
1: yeah it's interesting that in darwin's time you could talk about animal emotions it was perfectly fine and that's what he did and of course he went further than most in the sense that he was more precise in his descriptions and more precise in his comparisons but it was not a controversial topic Then we entered a whole century, which I call the dark period of uh, animal studies, because Skinner took over, B.F. Skinner in the U.S., and the behaviorists, and they're called behaviorists because they feel you only can look at behavior. You only talk about behavior. You don't talk about what's behind the behavior, such as thinking or consciousness or emotions or planning or none of that. They only want to describe behavior, and they prefer to see animals as machines, They look at emotions as a sort of byproducts that are irrelevant to these machines. Even in humans, for a long time, they would say they are irrelevant until of course the psychologists at some point put an end to all this nonsense, in the human species at least. But they kept maintaining that they double down on the animals. The animals, they might have emotions, but we should probably call it something else like affective states or something like that. And so for a whole century, Darwin's book was forgotten. It's the only book by Darwin
0: that went out of print and that disappeared. That's the expression of emotions in animals, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah, we're talking that's about. It's the
1: only book of Darwin that we lost <laughs> during that whole century. And that's because there was a taboo on animal emotions. And it's only now that finally we're coming back to it.
0: And just to jump in there, that's because of the nature of science, isn't it? Or the perceived nature of science. You write at one point that scientists often declare that objectivity is their goal, Mm -hmm. but that has given us a cold, mechanistic view of animals. That understanding of animals rode, so to speak, on the back of a certain understanding of what scientists should do and how they should behave, didn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, objectivity... Well, objectivity is fine and is wonderful, but if you want to understand humans, for example, no one would say, objectivity is my goal, but what kind of remark is that? Uh, I don't think that's the way we understand each other. So yeah, objectivity is good as far as it goes, but to understand animals, you have to be in tune with them, you have to know them intimately, you have to see them under many different circumstances. And so putting a rat in a little box and having the rat press levers is not necessarily the best way to get to know the rat. It's maybe a good way to get to know a specific learning mechanism, but other than that, um, you're not learning much about the rat. I always feel that empathy needs to be part of studies on animals. And of course, some of the greats, such as uh, Imanishi in Japan and Conrad lawrence in Austria, some of the greats have said that, is that empathy is a critical component of getting to know animals. And that doesn't mean that you run away with it and that every interpretation goes. That's not what I mean, but I mean you do need to be in tune with the animals and fascinated by them.
0: So when we emerge from the behaviorist shadow, as it were, in the second or third quarter of the 20th century and we pay greater attention to the idea that other animals do have psychological states and do have emotional states, we seem automatically to reach for a a Hobbesian view of them and that we understand them and their emotions as violent and competitive and selfish. Why is that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's a question that I've struggled with more, actually, than the question of animal emotions, because when I came up as a student... Lawrence's book on aggression was the book that had got everyone going and everyone started studying aggressive behavior in animals and in humans for that matter. And after World War II, there was maybe a logical obsession to think that we are an aggressive species with aggressive instincts. And then others added like the selfish genes to it and the competitiveness. And and so nature was depicted, including human nature, as entirely run by selfish motives and if you saw kindness, you shouldn't trust it because it couldn't exist. And so, scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. That was the mantra that was used in all of these books. And I found it extremely depressing because it ignored all the bonding and love and cooperation that you can see in the animal kingdom. That was sort of ignored or it was explained away as, as something else, or something like nepotism or something like that. It was a very depressing time. And that's another thing that we're growing out now. And it started, of course, with people emphasising the cooperativeness of our species. But now we have also lots of studies on empathy and altruism and cooperation in other species.
0: Well, I definitely want to come on to empathy and altruism and, in particular, its underlying sense of fairness. But before I do, I want us to just explore one or two of the emotions that you talk about in the book. And actually, before even that, ask you to pull apart the definition you draw very early on between emotions and feelings
1: yeah the reason i stress that distinction is because people will say you cannot study animal emotions because you don't know what they feel and i agree i don't know what they feel i cannot know what a dog feels i must add i can also not know what you feel You can tell me what you feel, you can tell me I'm sad, or I was sad, or I'm happy, and I can maybe see that you're happy, but still, I don't know what exactly you feel, because feelings are private states. And so even with the human species, I would say that's a big problem, that we don't know exactly what feelings are, and we only can get them from verbal reports. In animals, it's more hopeless, because we really don't know what to do with the feelings. And so that's why I set them apart, but for the moment, let's leave the feelings aside, We're not denying them. No one is denying feelings in animals, but just saying that they are inaccessible to us. But emotions, emotions are always expressed in the body. You will never meet someone who says, I was extremely emotional at this moment, and nothing happened to his body, to his voice, his blood pressure, his temperature, whatever. The body is always involved in the emotions. And so that's always measurable. So the facial expressions, for example, the voice changes, the behavior
0: the brain changes, all of that is measurable. Mm. You talk about smiling and laughter in one of the chapters, and we automatically associate that with uh, with humour or with comedy or with happiness, which is one of those characteristics that historically we'd like to say that's a very human characteristic. It doesn't have parallels in the animal kingdom. But actually, smiling doesn't really have its roots in that. And there are very close parallels, aren't there, between primates grinning and nervousness and need to reassurance and our experience of smiling and yeah. laughter
1: well if someone smiles too much we say it's a nervous person and so smiling is not entirely happy and entirely friendly there's a nervous component to it, which you can see in many of the monkeys who bare their teeth. Usually uh, people think they're threatening each other, but they're, they're actually appeasing each other. So it's an appeasement gesture. And still in humans, it's used as an appeasement gesture. If you want to come into a room where people stand and you want to appease them in the sense that they're not feeling threatened by your entrance, you smile at them. So it still has that meaning, even though in our species, the smile has gotten more of a friendly component than most of the other primates. Now, the laugh is very different. The laugh has a sound to it, first of all, and the laugh is with an open mouth. The human laugh is very loud compared to the ape laugh, but apes laugh too. And and if you tickle a young ape and they have the same tickling spots as, as human children, under the armpits and the belly and so on, if you tickle them, they're going to be laughing. They have this <coughs> type rough laugh that is not very high pitched compared to the human one. And so laughter is a much happier and friendlier and is under relaxed circumstances. You don't get an ape to laugh, or a human for that matter, under tense circumstances. That's really not the situation usually.
0: I love the detail in the book. You mentioned that apes love slapstick movies. (laughs) Are they enjoying comedy? What's going on there? (laughs) Yeah, there was actually a study one time of
1: laboratory chimps who were, of course, bored to death in these cages that they have. And so people wanted to enrich their lives showing them videos. And violence and sex and slapstick was what did it for them. (laughs) All the other stuff like landscapes or driving cars didn't do it for them. So, yeah, that was interesting. And slapstick, of course, is a very physical humor. And I think apes understand physical humour. And some people who have dogs will say that with young dogs, the same thing is that they have some sort of sense of humour. For example, a fully adult male chimp may laugh when he's being chased by a baby chimp, as if he thinks, this is so ridiculous, I'm being chased by a baby, that he has this laugh face on him. And we've seen observations
0: with our chimps. You mentioned boredom for some primates and chimpanzees in captivity. Mm-hmm. And that reminds us that emotions are not necessarily singularly positive things. I was really struck by the little detail in the book when you talk about a chimp in a West African forest who carried her dead infant with her for 27 days. And also the depression, and I think that's a perfectly fair word, that a female chimpanzee called Grief had who lost her three children. Mm-hmm. These are, again, emotions that we have historically considered quintessentially human, and yet you see them in some form or other in chimpanzees, don't you? Grief and depression and things like that.
1: Yeah, we have always called the negative emotions, the hostile emotions, as very animal-like, and if, if humans kill each other, we say they're acting like animals and so on. What we usually consider more positive or more noble emotions, such as grief and attachment and love, those we like to claim for ourselves. And grief, of course, is very common in all animals that have attachments, because what grief is, is noticing the loss of someone and noticing the irreversibility also. They have an understanding that once someone is dead, he's going to remain dead. And that's a very deep understanding that they have. And so uh, chimpanzees, for example, are very affected if one of them dies, Uh, they may not eat for days, they may be silent for days. And so how do they know that this individual is not coming back? In zoos nowadays, of course, the tendency is to show the dead body so that the chimps are aware what happened to that individual. That's also what happened with mama. When mama died, the zoo decided to show her body to the colony so that they have that understanding and that they can come to terms with it. And in the wild, we also know that they are very affected by the death of somebody. And when females lose their babies, yeah, that's an enormous attachment that all of a sudden is um, interrupted by the death of the baby and and the females are not ready for that interruption and so they keep carrying it around and they keep acting as if it it may come back to life and this is also known for other species like there was a killer whale in the pacific ocean who carried her calf around for many many days so these things uh, happen in all the mammals i
0: think Mm. Well, that's a really important point, and it's worth emphasising that even though we so far have been talking primarily about primates, your book is not exclusively about primates at all. You have lots of examples. I noted down some of them. Prairie voles showing signs of grief when they lose their mate. Dogs spending years near the graves of human owners. Elephants famously kind of scattering the bones mm-hmm. of deceased mm-hmm. elephants. Even mice drawn to other mice in pain. And when I particularly like African grey parrots getting upset about fairness. So mm-hmm. this isn't just a series of emotions that we can associate with certain limited primates. It's actually quite widespread, isn't it?
1: Certainly the emotions, but the same applies for intelligence in general. I think all of these phenomena can be found in many species. We initially usually start with the chimpanzees because we understand them the best. We are apes. And so we have hands and binocular vision. And so we relate to the apes so easily. We can transfer the tests that we do on human intelligence to the apes that usually it starts there. But then most of the time, within 5 to 10 years, there's going to be studies on birds, on parrots or corvids or on dolphins or elephants or dogs that show very similar capacities. And I call that the ripple effect of our cognitive research is that it usually spreads to all sorts of species. And yes, they show variations on it and not all of them show the same level of it necessarily. But we may reach the octopus and be surprised by what an octopus can do And uh, which we had never expected.
0: Let's home in on three areas that are often focused on in this particular debate, because, again, they're seen as sometimes the last human stand, as it were. I'm talking about fairness, consciousness and religion, and we'll, we'll take each of those in order. You also mention in the book an experiment which is filmed and is available on YouTube, and I suggest anybody who has an opportunity to watch it does, involving capuchin monkeys and grapes and cucumbers. Just tell us briefly what goes on in the experiment and what it shows us about concepts of fairness.
1: Yeah, I've had for 25 years a colony of capuchin monkeys. They live in a group, so you take them out of the group uh, for half an hour or so, and usually we took a pair out of it. And together with Sarah Brosnan, one of my students, we discovered that when you test a pair of monkeys, they watch what the other one is getting. So instead of just performing for their own food and their own rewards, they they are watching what the other one is getting. And they're very upset if the other one is getting more than they they get. And we thought this was really intriguing because they shouldn't care about what the other was getting, we felt, (laughs) and so we started testing them. It was a very simple task, and we would either give them both the same reward, so they both would get a little piece of cucumber and they would be perfectly fine on the task, or we would give one of them grapes and the other one cucumber, and grapes are so much better than cucumber that the one who was getting cucumber all of a sudden, even though before it was performing perfectly well, didn't want to do it anymore and got upset. And the little movie clip shows one of these monkeys getting really upset and throwing the food out and and not wanting to perform the task anymore. So that's the sense of fairness in monkeys. It was sort of funny when we published for the first time. We didn't use the word fairness, but the media did. And we got a letter from a philosopher who said it's impossible for monkeys to have a sense of fairness because fairness was invented during the French Revolution. So that's how the philosophers were looking at the <laughs> phenomena. <laughs> the philosophers were looking at it as if we decide these mechanisms, we humans, some old French guys in Paris decide that we need fairness or something like that. And but
0: as fairness 400 years ago then
1: no 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 and and children of course didn't care about who gets the biggest pizza slice or whatever yes well, so that sense of fairness of the monkeys is very simple i, I call it very egocentric because um, they're only caring about do i get less than somebody else but in chimpanzees it gets much closer to the human sense of fairness because in chimpanzees the one who gets the grapes may actually refuse the grapes until the other one also gets grapes And so in chimpanzees, they also care about fairness, even if they are on the winning end of the equation. Uh, And that gets us much closer to the human sense of fairness.
0: You call that second order fairness, don't you? First order fairness is about getting upset about me not being treated fairly. Second order fairness is being upset about other people not being treated fairly. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and and I must say that in modern society, we don't have enough second order fairness. Mm. And I think people are noticing that. It's undermining the society, I think.
0: Mm. But the important point there, I guess, certainly from a human and indeed a philosophical point of view, is that the raw ingredients of our concepts of justice, which are worked out in considerable detail and with a great deal of sophistication and justified and reasoned and so on and so forth, that justification reasoning might well, indeed is quintessentially human. But the raw ingredients of first and second order fairness about which we are reasoning it's almost inherent within creation.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I think philosophers often overlook that, is that John Walls, who wrote his book on the sense of justice, they overlook the emotions and he actually in his book I think explicitly states that envy needs to be kept out of the story, which I think is such total nonsense because I think all moral principles are based in the emotions and that's why we get so excited about uh, moral principles and that's why we get so upset when someone violates them is because the emotions are deeply involved in it and so I'm not saying that uh, the monkeys have a sense of justice or even chimpanzees have a sense of justice but they have these raw emotions they certainly do have them and we have built them into our systems of justice
0: just as an aside is this specifically a side issue of sociality in other words are we only seeing these issues of emotional responses to first and even second order fairness only amongst those animals that are hypersocial?
1: Yeah, we speculate, Sarah Brosnan and I, that it is mostly in cooperating species and maybe in cooperative hunters. It has been found in dogs, for example which stem from a long line of cooperative hunters. So capuchin monkeys and chimpanzees and dogs, they all do that kind of hunting. And so we think it relates to cooperation. And when you have a cooperative system, you need to watch what you get. If I cooperate with you and you take all the goodies, you're not a good partner for me. I need to either protest or walk away from you and get someone better to work with. Mm-hmm. And so in cooperative systems, you need to watch what you get. Whereas. Animals like cats, for example, who are solitary hunters, they probably couldn't care less. That's my assumption. If we would test cats the same way as we have tested dogs, we would probably not get much out of them for that.
0: On the last series of Reading Our Times, we spoke to John Gray about his book, philosophy and uh, Feline Philosophy, I beg your pardon, Cats and the Meaning of Life. And we've just got cats ourselves in our house. So I watch them and they're lovely and they're sometimes very affectionate. But I don't get a profound sense of fairness in what they do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, also they don't reconcile after fights the way that dogs may do or primates may do. Although I must say I've had cats all my life and there's an enormous individual variability in cats. And so we've had very sociable ones who probably would have these responses. And we have very solitary ones who couldn't care less about anybody else.
0: Mm. Let's talk about the second of the three points I particularly wanted to raise, which was consciousness. Now, I do this with some trepidation because I think it's probably fair to say we don't understand what consciousness is in the first instance amongst humans. So assessing whether certain animals exhibit consciousness is even more difficult. But you helpfully draw out what you call a first, second and third order of consciousness. Tell us about that. Yeah, consciousness... Sometimes, you know, I suspect it was
1: invented as a word to replace soul or something like that. It's like we humans have a soul and animals have no soul, but no one knows what the soul is. So it's very hard to disprove. And I feel with consciousness the same thing. No one tells me exactly what it is. So how do I know if an elephant has consciousness, yes or no? I usually say, tell me what it is and I'll tell you if they have it. So consciousness is very hard to put your finger on. And people are trying desperately. There's a book, for example, by Dan Dennett called Consciousness Explained. And by the end of the book, I still didn't know what it was. So so no. one way to look at it is that try to imagine a task that we humans cannot do without consciousness. Like if you organize a party at your home and you're going to invite friends. You need to think about what you're going to buy, who you're going to invite, what time it's going to start. You cannot organize a party at your home without consciousness because it involves planning. Now we have excellent evidence for planning in the apes. So apes will take tools to certain sites. They walk with these tools for miles and then they use them hours later and there's now experiments on apes where you give them tools that they can only use tomorrow. So you can give them the choice between uh, something that gives them rewards immediately, something that gives them rewards much later, much, much bigger, and they go for these long-term strategies. And so they do have planning. We have very good evidence for that. Now, if apes can plan to take tools to a certain place for a certain purpose, how can they do that unconsciously if we need consciousness to plan? So that's a way to get at it. I think there are certain things that require consciousness. And if animals show that, we must assume consciousness, I think. But that's Mm. a sort of high level of consciousness. That's not the consciousness of a single-celled organism, because people
0: talk about consciousness at all sorts of levels, of course. As I've said to you, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I really enjoy all your writing, and I agree with so much of it. So I was quite glad to come upon one point of it when I didn't agree with you. And it's this, about halfway you talk about language, about halfway through the book, Mm -hmm. and you say that emotions exist outside language and emotions clearly go beyond words and that language helps us discuss sentiments, but it doesn't play much of a role in how they're generated, expressed or felt. Now, I have no problem with the idea that emotions exist outside language, but I profoundly think that the way we speak about emotions helps us cognitively frame and therefore shapes those emotions as well. The two are actually very much more interlinked than that suggests. The famous statement that's often quoted here is Shakespeare's, a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. And that's once quoted in in The Simpsons, the American in The Simpsons, to which Bart, the young boy, responds, not if they were called stink blossoms. And it, I think it's a brilliantly funny point about, you know, actually if you call something something different... You begin to interpret it differently and feel differently about it. So I wonder whether language and emotions are actually much more tightly interlinked and interdependent than what you're suggesting there. Yeah,
1: I would say it's language and feelings. So the emotions as expressed in your face and in your voice and in your body, I don't think language has much to do with that. But language certainly with the feelings and how you name your emotions and your emotional states that you consciously perceive, yeah, how you talk about them is probably part of emotion regulation. Emotion regulation is awfully important, but I, I do think language helps. I think language helps humans to name their internal states and maybe navigate them and maybe decide, I need to give in, not give in to the jealousy today or uh, whatever their decision is on the emotional front.
0: Mm. Let's conclude by talking about religion. I remember reading a book by Robin Dunbar called The Human Story, in which he explores the similarities between humans and other primates and the story Uh of human evolution and comes to the conclusion that, in his view, religion is the thing that is the clearest distinction between humans and and other animals. Now, it's interesting that a number of the raw ingredients of religion, such as a sense of fairness such as possibly a sense of your own mortality, a sense of planning for the future, they are all present in some form in some primates, aren't they? And yet there's nothing, I think I'm right in saying that you would call religious or a religion exhibited amongst primates. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we we have talked about spirituality. I think, for example, Jane Goodall has mentioned that in relation to the rain dance of the chimpanzees, which they show when they approach a waterfall. And I've seen in captivity when there's a sudden downpour, chimpanzees putting all their hair up and walking around bipedally. So, yes, they have maybe spiritual experiences. There's also this recent study of chimps throwing rocks into hollow trees. I don't know if you've seen that, but they were with hidden cameras, they were filmed throwing rocks on a pile in, in hollow trees at several places in Africa, and no one knows why they do it. But when one of the research team mentioned to a newspaper that it looked like a sacred ritual, the next day, the Daily Mail, I believe, had the headline, Chimpanzees believe in God, <laughs> which was a bit of an overstatement, I think, next at that point. isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because I think, I think I'm closer to Dunbar's position that religion is really what sets humans apart. So religion is very hard to define. I remember being at a meeting of religion scholars. Uh, where someone said, let's start the session by defining religion. And then someone else said, well, remember, last time we did that, half the room emptied out. And so that's the problem, is that no one agrees on what religion is. It's a bit like this consciousness. No one agrees what consciousness is. And so for me, it's hard to say if animals have religion. But certainly, I think believing in specific supernatural phenomena I don't know what the evidence would be for that. I don't think that exists. So a general sort of spirituality, I can assume, but Mm -hmm. other than that, I don't think so.
0: And one of the critical... Examples, at least from archaeology, is the burial of the dead, isn't it? And I think I'm right in saying that at some point between roughly 50,000 years ago, there is very clear evidence of humans consciously burying other humans and indeed doing so with grave goods, which very strongly indicates belief that those deceased humans continue to exist in some form after death.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. For me, that's not necessarily religion, but that's belief in the afterlife. For you, that's the same as religion. I I think
0: that's a very specific belief, which of course. Well, I would say it's 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 one of those elements that Mm -hmm. is often placed within religion, because like you, it's impossible to define religion, and the best way to do so is by having a various kind of sort of smorgasbord (laughs) of different options, one of which is a cognizance of post-mortem existence.
1: Yeah, belief in the afterlife, I don't think animals have that. If you bring them back from the dead, that happened one time (laughs) at the Arnhem Zoo. They showed a film of two male chimpanzees who had died in the meantime. And so they had died like 10 years ago and they showed a film on which they were visible. And the chimps got extremely upset seeing this. They got also extremely scared seeing this. So so we don't know what they were thinking when they saw these two individuals reappear, (laughs) but it means that for them they were
0: gone. Let me conclude with a, a general question. So often our discussions in Reading Our Times come into this core issue of what does it mean to be human and how can we understand our humanity. And the subtitle of your book is Animal Emotions and What They Teach Us About Ourselves. So I suppose the obvious question with which to end is, what do animal emotions teach us about ourselves?
1: Yeah, I think my message in that regard is that we are much more emotional beings than we think. We always emphasize our brain and our mental capacities and our rationality. We are very proud of that. But I think we overlook our bodies we look down on our bodies, the flesh is weak, you know, we overlook our emotions. And of course, men think that women are more emotional, which is not a positive statement when they say that, even though I think it's a positive statement if you're more emotional, because I feel being in tune with your intuitions and your emotions is awfully important. And men could learn something from women in that regard. So for me, I think by stressing our animal side and the connectivity that we have with animals in the emotional domain, I think I'm also emphasising that we humans could learn something from how animals are in that regard.
0: The book is called Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Teach Us About Ourselves. Frans de thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. You're welcome. Next week... I'll be speaking to Ian McGilchrist about his new book, The Matter With Things. It seems that the vitality has been administered
1: out of existence and that we now live in a devitalized world. We need to recover our sense of being, living
0: human beings again in a world that is also alive. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.